The city of Worcester in Wayne County is many things at once. It's known as the dairy capital of the state and is home to farms big and small. It also has a thriving town center with a unique personality and three colleges that call it home, as well as big companies like Frito-Lay and Daisy Brands. Today, as part of our Get to NEO A Leader series, we invite Bob Reynolds, the new mayor of Worcester, to come in and speak with us. Welcome to The Sound of Ideas. I'm Jenny Hamill. We'll talk to Worcester's mayor about the strengths and challenges of the region. Then later in the show, we continue with our focus on farming with the Sound of Us series that looks at what it means to be a farmer in Northeast Ohio or to attract new farmers with the many challenges that include rising costs and diminishing resources. We'll speak with a husband and wife that run a farm together with an effort to be part of a sustainable future. First, the news. It's the Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Good morning, and thanks so much for joining us on this Tuesday. Almost two years ago, our show began a series called Get to NEO a Leader, which gives us a chance to talk to mayors and city managers in communities large and small. We started the series shortly after Ideastream Public Media expanded its news coverage to 22 counties. Our station reaches an area covering about 3 million people across the region. From Ashtabula and Trumbull in the east to Erie and Huron in the west, we cover urban counties that touch Lake Erie like Lorraine, Lake, and Cuyahoga, and more rural southern counties like Holmes, Stark, and Tuscarawas. The idea is to help connect listeners to places they may know little to nothing about. Today, we'll head to one of those rural counties in the southern part of our region that's home to more than 26,000 people and growing each year, the city of Worcester. It's the county seat of Wayne County, also known for being the dairy capital of the state, thanks in part to its agricultural center, and home to big businesses like Daisy Brands. It's also a bustling college town with three schools, including the College of Worcester and two Ohio State agricultural campuses. Joining me now to help us learn more about the city's strengths and challenges is the new mayor of Worcester, Bob Reynolds. Mayor, thanks for making the drive this morning to join us in studio. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. And as I mentioned before the show, uh, I'm glad to go anywhere to talk about Worcester. All right. Well, I like that enthusiasm. If you'd like to join the conversation or have a question for Mayor Reynolds, you can call us on a toll-free number, 866-578-0903. You can email us at soi at ideastream.org, or you can tweet us. We're at Sound of Ideas. Okay, so Mayor Reynolds, you are a lifelong resident of Worcester, as is your wife, as is, I understand, your children and your grandchildren. What was the city like growing up for you, and why did you want to stay in the area? Um, I think for anybody. So I'm 66 years old, so when you talk about growing up, you're talking, you know, 50 years ago or longer. Um, It was a different world then, I think, for no matter where you were. some ways better, some ways not so good. So it was definitely a smaller community, um, probably more uh, homogenous community. Um, uh, just there wasn't as much travel. I don't think there wasn't as much uh, uh, international uh, flavor to it, which is I think true of the whole world. Sure. But uh, so it was a wider, a wider area. Correct. Correct. I I don't think um, I didn't go to. I didn't see a person of color 
in school until I got to high school, or I'm sorry, junior high school. Wow. So, which, again, was not that unusual. We had eight grade schools at the time, and the one I went to was out in the country, or the, the country one, of, I suppose, and a uh, you know, very uh, homogenous group. So what did you love about it as a kid and growing up and, and, and said, hey, I, I want to get married and stay here? You know, I don't know. Uh, like a lot of people, I didn't necessarily plan on coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, it worked out that way, and I'm very happy it did. But at the time, I was kind of oblivious to how good I had it um, in a lot of ways. You know, I'll say, you know, with regards to my parenting, um, you know, the family I grew up in, you took it all for granted. Sure. But uh, you know, I spent four years uh, away at college, three years in Columbus for Ohio State, had great experiences uh, during those seven years. But um, the older I get, the more I get around other communities, I really realize how blessed we are in Wayne County and in Worcester. So you were an attorney for a long time. Still in, am. In the city. Okay. Still working attorney. And you were focused and maybe still are in real estate and zoning law. So tell us a little bit about that background and how it led yourself to, to current leadership. Well, um, first of all, it made me aware of some of the issues that we're dealing with, um, both in growth and in um, revitalization of some historic areas, older areas of town. Um, it also let me know the people involved, both on the development side and on the uh, regulatory side in the government. So I was familiar with those processes and people. And uh, I guess when the opportunity came along, part of it was kind of, uh, I think I'm probably too old to call it a midlife crisis, but you get to the point where you say, okay, what's this next chapter going to be? Sure. And there, uh, I am good friends with the previous mayor, and I knew he was not going to run again. And I thought, and again, everybody around me said, you are crazy to do this. Um, but I thought, why not? You know, you only go around once and let's take a stab at it. So was your midlife crisis, if you want to loosely call it that, kind of this draw towards public service? Because when you look at your resume, uh, you have involvement. I mean, obviously, school board, city council, but also there's kind of other civic organizations that you you are a part of. Yes. I, I mean, I think it was like, you know, and to some extent, um, the impact of having grandkids um, is a big deal. I think, you know, and if you talk to any grandparent, I think they'll tell you the same, where when you're a parent, it's just life and death from the standpoint you're trying to get through the day. Um, <laughs> I hear you. you. Know, so uh, it's that day-to-day challenge. And you don't see the big picture. Mm-hmm. But you get to the point where you have grandkids, and all of a sudden you're, it gives you some perspective and a chance to think of, okay, what kind of community or – you know, they may very well not end up in Worcester, which is great, you know, whatever they do. But for somebody else's grandkids, what type of community are we going to leave for them? So you start thinking a little bit beyond, you know, you know, at 66, you can't take anything for granted. So, sure. you know. So you're less granular and you're kind of going, what kind of community do I want for my grandkids? And you realize that I think by being involved in the community at a little bit is that you do have opportunities to move the needle on things. You know, I think there's sometimes where, as it's human nature to say, well, you know, I'm just one person, I can't make a difference. And, you know, sure, for a lot of things, maybe you can't, but there are other things you can. You can push on, you can make it, you can make a difference. So I thought that was an opportunity to do that. Okay. So for people who haven't been there before, 
can you paint a picture of Worcester? We just had Adam from Local Roots, which is the farm co-op grocery store that is in Worcester, who did a, a really nice job kind of painting a, a picture, made me want to visit. Um, I've not been yet. But why don't you describe Worcester to us? Well, first, I'm going to say, why have you not been there before? I so know. I'll throw that out there. Um, so we're the county seat uh, of Wayne County. Um, uh, like most typical county seats, probably we're dead center in the middle of the county. Uh, Wayne County is, by and large, an agricultural county, first and foremost. Um, we are the le- leading dairy producer in the state of Ohio, um, and uh, agriculture is our biggest industry. You're uh, talking hundreds of farms. Yes. And now it's kind of difficult when you say that because farming, like every other industry, has kind of gone in two directions. You know, we have some massive, massive farms, you know, milking thousands of cows. Mm. And then we have a lot of hobby farms, I would call them, that are smaller. So when you try, try to talk about the number of farms, it's a little difficult. And obviously, the, I don't know that we have any farms in the city, but mm-hmm. are in the county. Um, so that's kind of the flavor of it. Um, I like to think that in Worcester, we've got the best of both worlds where, you know, we've got this small town agricultural background, but we're less than an hour from Akron, a little more than an hour from Cleveland, hour and a half from Columbus. Um, we've been really blessed by just the way the uh, highway system serves us. Um, we are on US 30, US 250, State Route 83, excuse me, State Route 3. And from a commercial development standpoint or economic development standpoint, that's really been a godsend. And my understanding is the town itself is kind of this more, uh, it's, it's very much impacted kind of by the university. It's a little more liberal, quirky, lots of coffee shops, restaurants. Is that right? Um, certainly the university, uh, the College of Worcester, um, has an impact on that and the OSU schools. Um, it's certainly got an impact. And as the county goes, if you want to talk about demographics, the county is very Republican. Sure. Um Worcester itself is is more closer to a, an even mix. Okay. Um, so. so you've got politically a different demographic going on. Very much so. But leaning more Republican, um, especially if you're counting the county. Well. Absolutely. L- pro- the leaning would be accurate if you talk about the city. The county is overwhelmingly ha, ha, Republican. Okay. I don't so think not even ha- leaning. It's fallen no. over. Yeah, yeah, got I don't it. think there's a Democratic uh, elected official countywide. Okay. So how is that then for governing? Um, Who are you thinking about when you're making making decisions? I'll say this for myself, and I, I think every single member that I've been in city council with both previously and currently is um, I think everybody's thinking about the greater good. And I know that's not always the case uh, in different bodies, but um, we've really been fortunate to have people that we don't always agree, but it's not not disagreements based upon political party. Sure. um, And not necessarily disagreements based on uh, ideologies of any kind. Uh, Again, hats off to our uh, city council people who, again, um, I don't always agree with and they don't always agree with me, but... I don't think I've ever thought that they weren't voting in the way that they thought was in the best interest of the community. Mm-hmm. 
If you've got a question or a thought for uh, the mayor of Worcester, Bob Reynolds, who's in studio with me right now, uh, call the toll-free number 866-578-0903. You can email us at soi at ideastream.org. We do have an email, actually, from a listener who wants to talk about maybe a little bit of a darker aspect of, of what's going on in Worcester. She writes... Peggy's from Oberlin and says, I enjoy fly fishing at Gross Jean Park in Worcester with my two sons. However, the park's definitely scary. There's a homeless camp under the bridge about 100 feet from the skateboard park. Cars have windows smashed while folks are fishing and hiking. I've never seen a patrol car there. This is a really dark spot on an otherwise lovely area. Any plans to make it safe? Well, we do have a homeless issue. Mm -hmm. um, And... Uh, you know, I don't think that's unique to our community. It's something we all wrestle with. Um, I don't think we've had we've had a few instances of uh, safety related, mm-hmm. um, but I also think that you know, certainly um, some of the homeless population will take advantage of a, a car that's locked or unattended, or you know, that is a real issue. Mm-hmm. Um, we are concerned about that. Um, there becomes a question, uh, and we wrestle with this. Of you know, what point are are you helping people, and at what point are you enabling people? And uh, that's a conversation that's ongoing. But isn't housing and kind of dealing with a certain socioeconomic population um, something that is a concern for your administration and and trying to provide more housing for individuals? Uh, absolutely, but and again, it's. I, I repeat this mantra quite a bit sure. because this question comes up. It's really aw- awkward to talk about the homeless population as a homogenous group because okay. sure. every individual in there has got their own story. Um, and so many of the people there are dealing with factors that are beyond their control, whether it be a mental health issue or an addiction issue. Um, but some of the, again, some of these encampments, the squatters that are out there, uh, doing that by choice. Um, some of them are um, have addiction issues, and they recognize that some of the places we have, we have a very active Salvation Army shelter, and they either have been kicked out of the shelter or don't are unwilling to use it um, because of the addiction issues. Um, but what would you say to uh, Peggy, who likes to to fish at that park? I mean, are there efforts to make the area safe? Yes. And I again, I would disagree with her saying that it's unsafe. I'm sorry she's had that, those experiences. And we do, you know, what we tend to find, and it's funny, we, right, funny was the right word, but uh, we just had another encampment that was found. And, and what typically happens is we find an encampment. It's on some piece of unattended um, private property. And uh, it'll be two or three individuals typically. And they'll, the, we'll find out where they're at and ask them to leave, and then there's a cleanup crew involved, and they'll move to another site. Um, Let's take a call from Michelle in Cleveland. Michelle, good morning. Thanks for calling the Sound of Ideas. Good morning. I was calling to ask about the um, demographics. Uh, The mayor stated that when he grew up, he had not seen any people of color. I was interested in what's the breakdown now. Good question. Um, so I've got a little bit of public school background from being on the school board, and I'd like to use their numbers because the uh, State Department of Education, you know, 
monitors that every year. Sure. Right now, um, we've got our uh, our public school body is about eighty five percent Caucasian, and the other fifteen percent broken down. I'm and get trouble doing uh, small numbers and sure. doing that, but I'd say roughly five um, percent African American, probably five percent Latino, probably five percent, with the biggest percentage being um, Asian background, or excuse me, um, Asian Pacific. That's right. So about 15% are, are non-white, 85%. So there's been some growth since your days of, of, of seeing a, a person of color for the first time in junior high. Yes. Definitely. And I would say the other thing about that is um, when I was growing up too, we were much more segregated by where you lived. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of that was intentional. I don't sure. think there's a question about that. Uh, some of it was unintentional, though. Um, again, um, if you lived out in the country, you needed to have a car. And if you lived in the city, then not everybody had cars in the city. So um, probably the African-American population was much more centered in town. And fortunately, that's, you know, that's still true maybe a little bit, but by and large, you know, we don't have segregated neighborhoods anymore. I mean, that's a thing of the past. Let's talk about some of the things that, as mayor, you're excited about when it comes to policy or efforts that you're leading um, that will help the kind of general prosperity and growth of, of the town. Um, there's a couple things that I'm, I am very excited about. On, on the um, growth standpoint, um, we are growing, um, which you can't take uh, – you can't just assume or take it for granted that that's happening in Northeast Ohio because some communities are not. So our challenge is to grow strategically and intentionally. So we've talked about that quite a bit. Um, we've had, again, we've been fortunate, uh, but we've had some really good news recently about some ec- some uh, industrial expansions. Okay. If you caught the story yesterday, Scheffler announced, excuse me, a big uh, uh, new plant in the Dover area and kind of buried in there a little bit. They announced 650 new jobs. Um, 450 of those will be at the new facility in Dover, but 200 of those jobs that are in R&D will be at their Worcester site. Scheffler is now Worcester's biggest employer with over 1,600 employees. So So that's a big boost. That is a big, big boost. And that's the type of jobs that communities crave. You know, full-time jobs with with benefits. Um, That's the type of job that you build around. Mm -hmm. Um, So, again, that's huge news. I'm excited about that. Um, we're really looking at downtown issues, um, downtown neighborhoods. And that's, you know, there's some challenges that we've got. Um, our, our downtown itself, our business district, is doing great. We have uh, a host of restaurants downtown that people will drive in from counties away to, to stop in. We've got some boutique hotels. If you have not been to Worcester for a visit, you should do so. Adam says to go to Broken Rocks. Not to leave any restaurants out, but... <laughs> I, I don't want to go there. Okay, I tell, okay, I, again, if I if <laughs> I had a list, Broken, Broken Rocks is great, by the way. I love it, but there's a half dozen restaurants that I think I told you beforehand. I'd start naming them, but I'd leave one or two off, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I'd never live it down. So yeah. I'll just say there's plenty of options there. Um, but you get around the... Again, we've we're a small town. Um, but we've got some big town issues. Um, again, the homeless issue, um, housing issue, which is really two separate things. Um, we need we're underhoused, and part of it um, 
is the issues everybody's faced, the Great Recession, COVID, um, supply chain issues that are driving the cost of new construction way up. So we need more housing. And we've got an older housing section right around downtown. I would say, you know, you work two or three blocks away from downtown and that that's where probably the oldest housing in town in, and some of it is deteriorating pretty rapidly. So we need to replace that housing stock. And we've been talking to some developers about ways to bring in new housing into that downtown area, more of a townhouse type of, of style um, that maybe, you know, you see more common maybe in bigger cities to try to replace that and to try to rebuild our downtown neighborhoods. Let's take a call from uh, Betty, who is in Worcester. Betty, good morning. Thanks for calling in. Hi, good morning. Yeah, I just had a question for the mayor. Mayor, I wanted to know if you could talk a little bit about the town-gown relationship uh, between the College of Worcester and the city. You know, we just had a very unfortunate incident a few weeks ago where a child was hit by a car on a busy street right in front of the college, and the college really hasn't had a very um, very strong response to that incident. So maybe, you know, just over the years, could you talk about uh, the, the town-gown relationship? Thank you. Sure. Um, well, College of Worcester and the other schools are a very important part of the uh, uh, the community. The incident she talks about, you know, was re- really tragic. Hopefully, the the uh, child involved is going to have a uh, a good recovery. Although it was a serious injury, mm-hmm. um, it was a situation where the it was a child walking home from a uh, college basketball game. Unfortunately, the driver was a College of Worcester student. Mm. Uh, and there was a crosswalk incident where the child had run out in the crosswalk, and I don't, I have no idea where the fault lies in that. And don't want to get into that, um, but regardless of of where fault lies, it was certainly tragic for all involved. So, um, you know, you, you hope to minimize that. I think by and large, the um, relationship between the college and the town is is strong. Um, college has a new president. Uh, we. Were, had an open house a couple of weeks ago and was there for that. And uh, they've got everybody in uh, higher education has got challenges now. Um, and certainly they have some there, but I, I think they're going to get through this and uh, continue to be a, a strong asset in the community. We have another question and several minutes left of our conversation before we have to move on, unfortunately. But Aubrey is a College of Worcester alumni. She lives in Cleveland Heights now and asks, can you talk about the international business in Worcester and who's coming to Worcester from far away and why? Um, She also is curious about the Amish and the Mennonite communities and how they might impact the politics in Worcester. Well, so there's a lot of questions. Yes. <laughs> but let's talk so, about, um, yeah, international business. Is... So, I mean, to some extent, that's a little bit redundant anymore um, because I don't know that you can be in business and not be international. Sure. Um, Scheffler, it, like I said, is our biggest employer. Um, Scheffler is a German-owned uh, company. And, uh, again, I think 200 sites around the world. Um, and, you know, when I talk about the difference between Worcester when I was growing up and and now, and now, you know, if, if you see a group of people in that, you know, might be Indian, um, might be, uh, uh, you know, Germans, things like that, typically or not, they're, they're in with a Scheffler group visiting. You, mm-hmm. know, that, you know, typically they're going out to eat together after a day uh, touring the plant or something like that. So um, that's certainly changed. So Scheffler is a big uh, international employer. Uh, 
the universities uh, involved um, certainly draw from an international pool for their employees. Um, so I, we have very much an international flavor in town. And then let's talk about the Amish and Mennonite communities. So I, I don't know that we have any Amish living in town. We okay. certainly have an Amish flavor. Um, if you're not familiar with the geography there, Holmes County is the county directly south of us. Millersburg is the county seat there, and that's kind of the Amish uh, center of Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, the southeast corner, or I shouldn't say corner, the southeast portion of Wayne County is heavily Amish. Uh, I have Amish clients, um, certainly, but I wouldn't say the Amish uh, impact politics at all in Worcester. And to some extent, directly, they don't impact the, the economy too much, although the Amish are a big um, big provider of services. They do a lot of the contracting work in the county. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Small, small jobs, of course. I mean, the... Right, right. Let's take a call from Rebecca in Mansfield. Rebecca, good morning. Go ahead. Good morning. How are you? I'm from Mansfield, but I lived in Worcester, or excuse me, Millersburg for 26 years, and I took my children to Worcester. It was a big city, and I want to just point out some really positive things about Worcester. Um, we went to programs at Worcester Center for the Art. Um, we went to Ohio Light Opera, and I took my children from my three grandchildren and their parents from Phoenix to Ohio Light Opera this summer. We stayed in the bed and breakfast on North Market Street, which was absolutely phenomenal. The breakfast is something that you'd see out of history. It's just wonderful. Um, Christmas Run Park is great, and there's a lot of diversity at Christmas Run Park. You see everybody there. Um, The swimming pools are great. You see everybody there. Um, There are a lot of good programs, um, uh, discount programs for the swimming pool and the parks and uh, programming for people who are on Medicare Medicare, um, and Medicaid and that sort of thing. So um, Worcester does a phenomenal job. Uh, providing arts. They have a local foods market that is um, top-notch. Um, the library right, and is absolutely great. So, yeah, I just wanted to set a lot of, there's a lot of positives in Worcester. Right well, here. great. We have, coming. yeah. Thanks, Rebecca. I, I, you've got a, a booster there to kind of wrap up our conversation. So, Mayor, you've got a, a minute to kind of let us know uh, what's in store next. Well, um, what's in store next? We really want to get after the housing issue, right? Um, both um, in terms of adding new houses, and we're, and we're talking more about infilling, trying to put housing, not necessarily trying to grow the boundaries of the town um, and take up farmland, but trying to infill with uh, some existing areas, a little Better higher stock. Dense. Yes, and, and both in some areas have not been developed, and some areas that have been, and replacing that stock. We're talking about a higher density housing unit, um, which is more ecologically friendly, it's mm-hmm. greener, it's closer to downtown, um, because we think that's kind of really what young families are kind of looking for. Sure. Not necessarily everyone, but but there's a demand for that type of housing. So that's probably our next big challenge, and uh, I hope you'll have me back, and I can talk about all the progress we've made on that point. All right, we definitely will. Mayor Bob Reynolds with the city of Worcester made the, the longest drive uh, from Worcester <clears throat> to downtown Cleveland today. So great to have you in studio. Thank you. Thank you. What other cities or towns should we feature in our Get to NEO a Leader series? Send us your suggestions by emailing us at soi at ideastream.org. Time now for a break. When we return, we'll talk about our newest Sound of Us series, which focuses on farming. This is the Sound of Ideas. I'm Jenny Hamill. We'll be right back.
You're with the Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks so much for being with us this hour. Ideastream's Sound of Us project aims to tell the stories of Northeast Ohioans through their own voices. Over the years, this series has shared the stories of the region's LGBTQ plus youth, immigrants, and refugees settling in Northeast Ohio, and a series of people on the autism spectrum talking about their own experiences. Today, The Sound of Us launched its newest series about farmers in rural counties. This newest Sound of Us series looks at the different challenges in the farming landscape, including costs, climate change, and bringing in younger generations of farmers. It also highlights opportunities, including more sustainable farming. The series, which launches today and will air every Tuesday for a month, it will feature everything from small farms that have been in the family for generations to young people entering farming to a farm that focuses solely on goat products. Joining me now in studio to talk about this latest series is Stephen Langell, reporter for Ideastream, whose story in the series published today. Stephen, thanks for being with us. Happy to. Also joining us by phone is Jen and Joe Lotzenheiser, who together run the Glenview Acres Farm in Stark County. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much Hello, for having us. Hello, thanks for having us. If you'd like to join the conversation or have a question, call 866-578-0903. Again, that's toll-free number 866-578-0903. You can email us at ideastream.org or tweet us. We're at Sound of Ideas. So, Stephen, why did the Sound of Us team want to talk about farming for this next series? Well, farming is important to so many of the communities that we cover, and it's also important for everyone because it's source of our food. So we want to do more to highlight those communities, highlight those people and their work. Um, plus, there's so many interesting stories out there about changes in farming practices and young people coming back to that industry and the kind of impact it makes. Yeah, and your piece actually focuses on young farmers. So tell us a little bit more about what your reporting uh, led you to. Well, just that... Um, as farming practices change to be more appealing, to be more directly connected to the community, more sustainable and so forth, it becomes of greater interest to the next generation and more folks get involved in farming. So it's really about how do you farm and how do you connect with people? Joe, your family had land that had been in the family for generations, but they hadn't farmed it till recently. So what made you and Jen, your wife, decide you wanted to start using it for farming? Yeah. Uh, so as you mentioned, I grew up on the farm and I loved riding in the tractors and stuff that would come by from the, uh, the farmers that rented the land. And I just always loved being around it and thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool to, to do something with the family land someday? Um, but didn't really know what, what that would look like. Um, and then, Jen, you can mention your family's background. Yeah, my family, um, we had a small farm when I was growing up. We had livestock, and we had ventured into... Um, using practices that were more regenerative and sustainable, but on a very small scale. Um, so when Joe and I met, we both kind of had that interest in farming, um, but weren't really sure where we wanted to take it. 
Uh, so that's where the conversation got started between the two of us. Okay, and so, knew, yeah, go ahead, Joe. Sorry, I knew it wasn't going to look like uh, a traditional uh, model with a lot of big machinery and extensive acreage. That just didn't sound very very appealing to me. I got into uh, competitive cycling in high school and um, got more into nutrition and things like that and reading about where our food comes from and how it's produced and coupled that with a vision that Jen and I uh, settled upon together of wouldn't it be cool to produce not only great food for ourselves but for our community in such a way that could be done you know financially on smaller acreage which for us is about 100 acres and specifically joe you know, part of your competitive cycling and the regenerative farming, you were seeking out healthy meats. So how does that come into play? So we decided to to raise uh, livestock on our farm because of uh, how it greatly ties into regenerative agriculture. And a lot of people don't realize this, but it doesn't take grain to produce high quality meat. Our beef is 100% grass uh, fed and finished. And grasslands, historically, a um, great example is the, the bison on the Great Plains. They built the greatest soils in the world um, until we plowed it all up and created the Dust Bowl. So, yeah, that's that's it in a nutshell just using the animals to rebuild the soil and have permanent vegetation on the land and where do you sell your meat we sell our meat um, a few different places one directly off the farm um, we've also participated in farmers markets including the downtown worcester farmers market the last several years uh, and then in this past year, we also launched our shipping program. So we ship meat um, frozen anywhere in the state of Ohio now. Interesting. So, Stephen, let's talk about your actual story. And you did profile Joe and Jen, and uh, they kind of elaborated to you what farming and regenerative farming means to them. Let's go ahead and hear a clip from that story. It's fulfilling to think, wow, I actually feed that person. They're relying on us. That's something that's really special that we really love about this way of farming is we're able to build a community around it. I would assume, Stephen, that that sentiment probably holds true for lots of farmers. The idea of, you know, kind of that autonomy over the land and growing something or raising something that, you know, supplies nutrients to others. Um, do you think that's, uh, you know, kind of a pure aspect of that that kind of job <laughs> well i mean certainly it's my understanding also in terms of the other features that we're doing on this subject that would come up this idea of it's it's fulfilling to know you're making such a positive difference in people's lives and the more directly you're connected to them through selling to them interacting with them farmers markets and whatnot the more you understand and you feel the difference you're making joe 
it, it, you know, it's obvious you have a lot of passion for farming. I'm curious. I mean, do you have relationships with other farmers? Because I, I've got to assume that, you know, I think we, we are talking about kind of a new style of farming versus old. But I, I, I think there, there's there got to be a similarity in, in what drives people to want to be a farmer and have a relationship with the land and wondering if you have a network of farmers that you're a part of. Yeah, I think uh, Jen has a good answer to that. Uh, let me preface it real quick just by saying a large part that we see about uh, sustainable or regenerative agriculture isn't just the food or how it's produced, but it's the people part, which I love that you're getting at. You know, there's a lot of problems with conventional farming. There's no money in it. There's a lot of debt. It's depressing to work around uh, animal factories. Um, 70% of our farmland will transfer ownership over the next 20 years and family members don't want it. Mm. You know, it's largely going to go to development or corporate farms. Um, so those are all scary issues. But my point is regenerative agriculture is mostly younger people because it's a way that's actually inspiring. It's uh, a lot of thinking outside the box, lower barrier infrastructure. Um, but yeah, Jen, why don't you talk about the uh, relationships we've developed with other people? And Jen, you've got about a minute to do so. Okay, yeah, building community um, as farmers with other farmers is we found to be so important because farming can inherently be kind of lonely. Um, you're out doing your own thing every day. Um, but we've been uh, really fortunate to be able to build relationships with farmers that are not only doing things similarly to how we're doing, which tends to be younger people, um, but the majority of farmers are older right now. And we've been able to build friendships in the area with, with farmers that they're farming differently than us, but we still have a lot of common ground. And that's been really, really special in our journey. Stephen, 30 seconds, tell us more about the series and what pieces we might hear next. Of course. So, you know, from now until March 26th, there are going to be a number of stories. They're going to focus on a lot of the same themes. Healthy organic foods is focused on regenerative farming, how to reverse this lack of interest and bring more people from new generations into farming. And finally, uh, this idea of a uh, goat farm and what that means for skincare products and just generally the quirky sort of I don't know, interesting personalities of the, of the farm animals there. I love it. That is Stephen Langell, reporter here at IdeaStream, and also on the line, Jen and Joe Lotzenheiser, who run Glenview Acres Farm in Stark County. It was a pleasure to talk with all of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Time now for a break, but we will hear my conversation with NPR host Aisha Roscoe when we return. This is The Sound of Ideas. I'm Jenny Hamill. We'll be right back. It's the Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks so much for staying with us this hour. As a regular listener of NPR, you're likely familiar with the name Aisha Roscoe. She's the host of NPR's Weekend Edition Sundays. Roscoe attributes a lot of who she is now to the formative years she spent at Howard University, an HBCU or historically black college or university. In that vein, Roscoe recently released a book called HBCU Made, a celebration of the black college experience. It's a book of essays written by graduates of HBCUs about their experience and what it meant to them. 
Contributors include Oprah Winfrey, Stacey Abrams, and Roy Wood Jr. I recently spoke to Aisha about how the book celebrates the college-going experience of many Black graduates and scholars. Aisha, the book is a compilation of essays from people who went to a historically Black college or university. Why did you think it was important to create a book or a compilation like this? Well, you know, Algonquin actually came to me and said, um, would I be interested in to, in, in to bringing together a collection of essays and, you know, um, from HBCU graduates? And they said that this hadn't been done before, um, not from a major publishing company and not with the HBCU graduates in their own words telling their stories. Um, and I was shocked. I, I thought this would have been done a long time ago. Um, and so when I learned that, you know, this wasn't around, I thought about my experience at Howard University, which really shaped me um, and really put me on the path where I am today. And I felt like I had to do it because I I know what going to an HBCU meant to my life. Um, and I wanted to be able to just give a little bit of that back and put a little bit of that back into the world. I know that, uh, you know, you reference essentially the legacy of some of these HBCUs and uh, the alumni that went there and, and, you know, the fact that you're kind of standing on the shoulders of giants. So for present day heroes that, you know, went to these schools, how did you decide on the voices that might appear in this compilation? Well, I wanted people from a wide range of experiences, um, from not just the big colleges that everyone hears about all the time, like Howard or Spelman or Morehouse, um, but also from, you know, some of the, the smaller HBCUs, because there are, there are 100 HBCUs in this country. Um, and, and so some of them don't get as much recognition, like Dillard University or Talladega. Um, and, and so I wanted to um, be able to shine a light on a wide variety of of stories, you know, big and small universities. And I also wanted people who had a story to tell, um, you know, unique stories like, you know, Roy Wood Jr., who's amazing, who actually, you know, got into trouble at FAMU and then was able to get a second chance um, at that college. And really to, you know, he's able to do what he does today as, as a great comedian. He credits FAMU for that. Um, we have the story of someone who was at Dillard, which is in New, New Orleans, who went through Hurricane Katrina, which shut the whole school down and like what that meant for the HBCUs in that region and how resilient they were. So I wanted like a wide range of experiences. And if you can get Oprah in your book, you you should. And so that's why I'm very grateful to have Oprah Winfrey in the book. And, and I, you know, I did read Oprah's essay and I liked the fact that it seemed like she was talking to the current students and, and graduates specifically to say what an opportunity and, and that yeah. you are, you know, kind of one step away from um, maybe the rest of your life or, or a great opportunity. So don't squander it. So it seemed like she was uh, kind of giving a pep talk to uh, the people currently attending uh, HBCUs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and she talks about like how 
um, you know, a very uh, a professor who was very tough, but he was the one who convinced her father to allow her um, to do her first, uh, you know, TV internship. Um, and he was the one who said, look, this is what you come to school for. And so, I mean, could you imagine if Oprah Winfrey hadn't taken that TV internship, right? Um, and so I, like, those are the sorts of stories that, um, I wanted to, to document. And I'm so grateful that we were able to do that. So let's talk about your own experience. You went to Howard. Um, tell us more about that experience for you and, uh, some of the highlights that kind of, you know, flash in your mind when you think about your time there? Uh, I mean, I, going to Howard, coming from Durham, North Carolina, I was a very shy, introverted girl, never really had a, a social life in high school um, and was just really good at school. Um, and, and, and so when I got to Howard, it was a complete culture shock. I, you know, I never, it felt like the big city of D.C., um, and it, it, it just felt like I went from, you know, riding a tricycle to being in a Lamborghini and I didn't know how to drive, right. but, <laughs> but, but I survived, right? Like, I think that's part of what I learned about Howard is that I was stronger than I knew, mm-hmm. um, and that there was more to me than I thought. Um, and, and what I always say about Howard and I say in the book is that you, you learn that you have to come correct. Howard is a tough crowd. They, you know, they expect excellence in the way you dress, in in your preparation, in your knowledge. You cannot come there half-stepping. And so I learned that you have to be able to be prepared and to be confident in your preparation. Like, that's what you're really confident in because you're not going to be able to fake it. You know, people can tell when you're just kind of fronting. Um, But when you know what you know, and you can stand in it, um, you can really, um, you can have that confidence. And that's what I, it didn't happen overnight. I didn't, you know, I wish I could say it all happened overnight. But eventually the seeds that were planted in me, I think you can see them now. You spend time in your essay talking about, you know, how impactful working for the school paper called The Hilltop was. Do you think there's learning lessons from that experience that shape the work that you do now at NPR? Oh, absolutely. Like, I mean, that's really where I cut my journalism teeth was at the Hilltop. Um, I eventually became editor-in-chief my senior year. At that time, we were daily. Um, So we were like the only uh, daily HBCU newspaper at that time and really one of the only daily black papers at that time. Um, And so what I learned, I I learned about the importance of standing your ground. Like, you know, we had to report on some things the university didn't always like. Um, But I learned how to, um, that even with pushback, you know, if you know that your reporting is sound, to stand by it, to stand on it. I learned about, but I also learned about how reporting can impact people. And so there are times where you have to make sure, and I had to learn from mistakes that, you know, how am I being careful enough? Am I being not just following the letter of journalism rules, 
but really being compassionate because sometimes you might, you know, it might be uh, okay, <laughs> you know, maybe you didn't break any rules, but were you as compassionate to this person and you're reporting as you would want a family member or yourself to be treated? And so that is something that I learned at Howard. I also learned at Howard uh, from the great Philip Dixon, who was over the journalism department, that you never play with people's money. And I've taken that with me forever. Like, it don't matter if it's five dollars. Don't play with people's money. Yeah. <laughs> and in journalism, you know, that's an important thing to know because you always got to follow the money. Like, that's what it's all about. But don't play with people's money. So I've taken that with me. You know, a couple of essayists talk about, including yourself, you know, when you take race out of the picture, how truly transformational it was for the college experience. Um, so talk a little bit more about that. I think that, you know, what happens oftentimes that you may not realize is that when you're in other spaces, you can fit where it's not just black people, you can feel a pressure of um, people looking at you and thinking about stereotypes or do you belong or are you, you know, that really just a questioning of your humanity um, at HBCUs. They are not perfect. I, I want to be clear on that. But at the very least, what you hear over and over in these essays is just a freedom to develop and grow without having to think or without having people looking at you and going, well, are you a human? <laughs> are you capable of thought um, just because you are a black person? Um, and that that can allow you to grow and to develop um, without um, just the the pain and the really exhaustion that racism brings. And lastly, uh, I know we're running out of time, but, uh, you know, another theme that comes up is that sense of sisterhood or brotherhood that seems to stay with you for life from having attended, let's say, Howard or another HBCU. Um, how strong is that feeling? It, it, it's extremely strong. And I mean, I think you see this in Tendai Kumba. She's a Broadway dancer and singer, and she writes beautifully about Spellman. Um, and, and what she talks about is going through an accident um, and not knowing if she would dance again um, while she was at Spellman. And it was her Spellman community who rallied around her. Um, and now she's dancing on Broadway. So those sorts of stories are throughout um, HBCU made. Um, and so you see community and and the importance of community in these institutions. The book is HBCU Made, a celebration of the Black College Experience, NPR's Weekend Edition Sunday host, Aisha Roscoe. I appreciate you speaking with me. Oh, thank you so much. That was NPR host Aisha Roscoe talking about her new book, HBCU Made, a celebration of the Black College Experience. To get the last word on today's topic, send an email to soi at ideastream.org. We're on Twitter, now X at Sound of Ideas. You can follow me at Jenny Hamill underscore. Tomorrow on the Sound of Ideas, we'll talk to Ideastream's criminal justice reporter, Matt Richmond, about the recent shakeup in leadership for Cleveland's Division of Police. And we'll talk about new highway traffic monitoring efforts from the Ohio Department of Transportation following last year's tragic Tuscarawas Valley school bus crash. If you missed any portion of the program, find us online or listen to the Sound of Ideas podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can hear a rebroadcast tonight at 9 o'clock on 89.7 WKSU. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks so much for listening, and I will speak with you again tomorrow. <laughs>